0: into our sermon this morning, uh, continuing in the book of Revelation, uh, All Things New, Hope at the Revelation of King Jesus. Uh, And we are in the midst of, uh, we're in Revelation chapter 3, and we are in the midst of the letters uh, that Jesus is uh, um, addressing specific churches uh, throughout Asia Minor, and today we will be looking at the message to the church in Philadelphia. Um, this is Philadelphia in Asia Minor, not Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. So if you were, uh, if you were like, man, this, this book is really applicable to today. Jesus is writing to Philadelphia. Um, no, this is Philadelphia in Asia Minor in the first century. So, uh, but this morning I want to ask us the question of what is success? Not just simply what is success in your individual life or whatever you are giving yourself to, but more speaking specifically to the Christian life. What is success in the Christian life and for the church? What is success for us as a church? Well, we've looked many times. Jesus uses the language throughout the book of Revelation of this language of victory or overcoming, right? All who are victorious, uh, "...will be clothed in white," was last week's message with the church in Sardis. Uh, "...all who are uh, victorious or overcome, uh, whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death." All of these phrases to these churches are, "...those who are victorious." Uh, other translations use the language of overcoming or being victorious. "...victorious." Uh, these types of phrases are all throughout the book of uh, Revelation. So the question is, what do they mean? And we have looked at several times, we've looked at this passage, which says, uh, Revelation twelve eleven. And they, speaking of the saints, have defeated him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. So according to Revelation, this victory or overcoming, the key to success in Revelation is not so much in winning, not so much in conquering over, but in surviving in faithfulness or persevering, not crushing my enemies by me conquering over them, but persevering in faith in Jesus, even if it costs me my life. They loved not their lives, even unto death. That the way in which we conquer Satan, the way in which we are victorious in the world, is by remaining faithful in our witness to Jesus, because it's the blood of the Lamb that conquers Satan. And us remaining faithful in our witness to Jesus and persevering to the end. This is the question. Each week we've looked at one of these letters and asked what is the question that Jesus is asking of the church and then to us. And this morning's is, will you persevere? Will you persevere? You see, the Christian life and the life of the church is not about starting well, but about finishing well. About finishing well. Lots of things are started, but will we finish well? Will we persevere? And how do we do so? Well, let's look to see what Jesus has to say to the church in uh, Philadelphia. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. This is the message from the one who is holy and true. The one who has the key of David. What he opens, no one can close. And what he closes, no one can open. I know all the things you do, and I have opened a door for you that no one can close. You have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. Look, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue, those liars who say they are Jews but are not, to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones I love. Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. And all who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God and they will never have to leave it. And I will write on them the name of my God and they will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what He is saying to the churches. All right, this this section uh, is a a lot of contrast to what we looked at last week in Sardis. Remember last week in the the church in Sardis, there was really no uh, commending of the church in Sardis as a whole. There was some who had not yet soiled their clothing, right? Who had not yet... uh, Uh, compromise their faith with the world. That was really the only commending that Jesus offered for the church in Sardis. It was a hard word. This letter, this section, is one without real complaint. This is an encouragement. This focuses in on the encouragement to the church to persevere. He says, you have little strength yet, and yet you still have not compromised you're still holding fast you're still persevering hold fast continue to hold fast continue to persevere he begins this remember each of these letters begins with a portion of the vision that John saw of Jesus and in this one in particular it starts with uh, the the message this is the message from the one who is holy and true the one who has the key of David what he opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open. Your, your uh, translation may have this section set apart a little bit, uh, because it's an allusion to the Old Testament. It's not a direct quote, but remember, the book of Revelation alludes to the Old Testament more than the rest of the New Testament combined, right? It alludes to the Old Testament the most out of any other book. And this allusion comes from the book of Isaiah, and so I want to read this little section of the book of Isaiah so we can understand what does he mean by he has the keys of David? What, 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 is, what is he talking about here? How do we understand what this is? So Isaiah twenty two nineteen through 25 says this. This is the Lord speaking. Yes, I will drive you out of office, says the Lord. I will pull you down from your high position. And then I will call my servant Eliakim, son of Hilka, to replace you. I will dress him in your royal robes and will give him your title and your authority. And he will be a father to the people of Jerusalem and Judah. I will give him the key to the house of David, the highest position in the royal court. When he opens doors, no one will be able to close them. When he closes doors, no one will be able to open them. That's the reference that John is alluding to here. He will bring honor to his family name for I will drive him firmly in place like a nail in the wall. They will give him great responsibility and he will bring honor to even the lowliest members of his family. But the Lord of heaven's armies also says the time will come when I will pull out the nail that seems so firm. It will come out and fall to the ground. Everything it supports will fall with it. I, the Lord, have spoken. All right. So this is the Lord speaking Uh, to uh, a a prophecy over uh, this uh, guy named Shebna. And Shebna was the palace administrator uh, under King Hezekiah. So he's like second in command in Israel. So King Hezekiah right, is is in Jerusalem, and this guy is second in command. He's of the highest uh, in the royal uh, palace, right? And he's in charge of all of these things. And the Lord says, I'm going to remove you, Because of your sin, and I'm going to replace you with Eliakim. And I'm going to give him the keys of the house of David. Right? David is the king to which all other kings in Israel are looked at. You're either like David, or like we saw a few weeks ago, you're like Ahab. You want to be like David, not like Ahab. Ahab, no good. David, good. Right? And even David struggles, right? But uh, the reality is that. It is a promise that God gives to David that one of your sons will sit on the throne forever. A descendant of you will sit on my throne forever. So to have the keys of the house of David is to have the rule of God, the kingdom of God set on your shoulders. The kingdom of God, the government will be on his shoulders. Isaiah 9, right? In reference to King Jesus. You see, in the Old Testament, uh, in in all of these Old Testament allusions that we see here in Revelation and throughout the New Testament, there are these things like uh, that that we call types of Christ. Things in the Old Testament that we see and we look to, and we say that's functioning like Jesus functions in the New Testament. And we can learn lots about the richness of the metaphors and the figures of speech that are used in the New Testament by understanding the context of what's happening in the Old Testament so that we know exactly what he's talking about, right? We can relatively easy understand, okay, keys, that's how you open and shut things. So something about keeping people in or letting people in and keeping people out. We can understand that. But the richness of this, when we align it with the keys of the house of David, is this is the kingdom of God, the very kingdom of God. The king is coming, and he's going to give the keys to King Jesus he will open and shuts now here's what's interesting here when it comes to types of christ eliakim isn't even the king he's the palace administrator he's like the second in command guy when it comes to old testament allusions and things in which god is doing it's often the most unlikely hero that god taps to be the one carrying forth his kingdom which is Jesus himself, right? Born of a virgin in Bethlehem, in like nowhere, right? What good can come from Nazareth? That's what they used to say of Jesus, right? In his day. He came from nowhere. He wasn't of this distinguished royal line that you could see and trace all of these things, right? He is of the line of David, but it is this hidden way in which he shows up. This is often how God works. And so when we're looking at the way in which the New Testament interacts with the Old Testament, it's helpful for us to note it might be these more minor characters that show up and exemplify something about King Jesus, right? A famous example of this would be Melchizedek. He shows up in the book of Hebrews and you're always like, who is this dude? Like, I don't understand this. Like he shows up, Once in the Old Testament, and now, uh, well, really twice. He shows up in the Psalms where God says, you're going to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And you're like, what the heck does that mean? Right? It's an obscure character in which God is saying, there's something about this that points to King Jesus. Because the whole of the scriptures tell this varied story of God's people traveling, of God's people doing all these things, but it's really telling one story which is the coming of King Jesus to save his people. It's really telling one grand story. And we've already seen in Revelation when John sees Jesus, he sees Jesus in all of these different ways. He sees this vision of Jesus as one who is glorious, who has kingly features, who has judgment features, who has priestly features, who has prophet features. He is the fullness of God and the fullness of man. And so we should not be surprised that Jesus is going to pull all of these types from the Old Testament and, and showcase to us more of his character. So, keys to the house of David. So, authority over the house of David, the government of Old Testament Israel, which is to be ruled by God. So, authority in this sense is greater than any earthly governments because Jesus is king of the universe. So, to open and shut the doors of the kingdom means... Who gets in and who doesn't? Jesus has authority over the keys of the kingdom. He has authority over who gets to enter into his kingdom and who does not. Now, there's something else about this Old Testament allusion that I think we need to key in on to understand this passage. Clearly, in this Old Testament allusion, he's speaking to Israel, right? He's speaking to Jerusalem. He's speaking to the people of God in the Old Testament the people of Israel. Now, in this section, right, Jesus specifically in Revelation addresses the church. He addresses the church in Philadelphia, and he's addressing the church universal, right, because there are seven letters. He's addressing the church universal. Just as we see Jesus throughout the New Testament act in the place where God acts, right, if, if you want to see uh, a proof of the divinity of jesus there are many places in which jesus in very jewish first century ways declares i am god and they try and stone him for it right so you're not going to see in english jesus say i am the second person of the trinity i am god that like that's not how the the new testament works but he does so and you can tell he does so because the jews of his day pick up stones to kill him because they understand what he's saying But often throughout the Gospels, Jesus also acts in the place where only God acts. So they say things like, wait, who does this man think he is that he can forgive sins? God alone forgives sins. When the disciples see Jesus command the winds and the waves, only God can command the winds and the waves. Only God can do these things. And Jesus shows up time and time again in the place of God, declaring that he is God. Similarly, in the New Testament, the church shows up time and time again in the place of Israel. In the place of Israel. The way in which uh, Jerusalem is supposed to act, the way in which Israel is supposed to act, the multi-ethnic global church gets the promises of God that Israel is entitled to. That's what happens throughout the book of, uh, uh, the book of Revelation and throughout all of the New Testament. And so they, the, the multi-ethnic global church is getting these promises that God has promised. Now, what's interesting is in Isaiah, there's this contrast between the, the people of God and the pagan Gentiles. And in Revelation, it's now the Gentile church with unbelieving Israelites, right? He talked about the synagogue of Satan and those who claim to be Jews who are not really Jews. Those who are have rejected the Messiah. The rightful heir of the promises of God is the church. This is really important because there are some views of Revelation and indeed of all the scriptures that maintain a sharp distinction between Israel and the church. And here we see Jesus is ascribing to the church promises that were directed to Israel specifically. So it's really important as we understand the fullness of the scriptures, right, that this that there that there aren't these two plans of God for two different types of people, uh, two different distinct groups. Remember, Paul, the whole point of the gospel for Paul is that Jew and Gentile are coming together under the banner of King Jesus. The global multi-ethnic church of Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, this culture-crossing, glorious new creation is the very people of God. Now, this is really important because that means the mission of the church to see all nations come to know Jesus is not a side story. Like, diversity within the church reaching all nations, all people groups, is not like a, well, that's nice and good for some people to pursue, but not really, you know, like, important. No, it is the very mission of God. He is gathering a global people, From every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. We're going to see this throughout the book of Revelation. But they are coming into the New Jerusalem. This is what is most new in the New Covenant. Right? This is what's most new. Everything in the New Covenant is more revealed. King Jesus is more revealed. Certainly, he's present throughout the Old Testament as we're seeing. Right? He shows up in all these different types. But the thing that is brand new, that is earth-shattering... His Jew and Gentile are coming together into the people of God. And so this is the very mission of the church. So, now that we got a picture of what's going on in this Old Testament illusion, how does that encourage us to last until the end? How does that help us last until the end? How does that help us to persevere? Because that's the question that Jesus has for the church in Philadelphia. Will you hold fast? Will you persevere? Right, he says. uh, You have little strength, yet you have obeyed my word and did not deny me. Because you have obeyed, I will uh, uh, my command to persevere. Because you have obeyed, I will uh, my command to persevere. I will protect you. Hold fast until the end. Well, the way that this. Old Testament allusion, in this passage, the reason that Jesus is alerting us to this is because he has opened a door that no one can shut. The end of that passage was kind of odd, right? In Isaiah, it was like, Eliakim, you're going to be like a nail hammered into a wall that everyone can hang on. We're going to hang the government, the keys, everything on this nail. And then it's like, oh, the Lord also says, at some point, I'm going to pull the nail out. Because Eliakim isn't the savior. He isn't the answer. All throughout the Old Testament, all of these types show up, and they're like, oh, you're either like Ahab or you're like David. But even the good ones, they end with like, yeah, he was like David, but he didn't really do everything right, right? It's like, oh, my goodness, you are almost, no, no, not David. Oh, this is the one. Nope, sorry, not it. And that actually goes back further to this promise that God gives to Adam and Eve when he curses the serpent and he says, one will come from Eve who will crush his head. And every stage of the Old Testament, they're just waiting. Is this the serpent crusher? Is this the one? And Eliakim is not it. And God says he's not it because I'm going to pull that nail out of the wall. But Jesus, he's it. Jesus is it. Meaning, if Israel had hope in Eliakim and they could have hope to have God on their side and the keys of the house of David given to them, how much more hope can the church have that Jesus has those keys? He's opened the door. No one will shut it. What Jesus says to them is, I have opened the door to you and no one can close it. I've opened a door for you, Philadelphia, for you, City Hope. Jesus has opened the door and no one can shut it. And because you have obeyed and persevered in the time of testing, I will protect you. Now, we need to make an important note here. Because some, some ways of interpreting Revelation, which, again, if you missed the, the first sermon in this series, um, check that out sometime not because it was particularly wonderful, but because there's a lot of information there about how we're walking through this book, right? And so there's some pieces there about how we understand this book, but it's going to show up in multiple places. And the popular way in which the book of Revelation is understood in uh, the broad Christian church in America, which it's pretty unique just to our context, and it's a pretty new uh, view of Revelation slash the New Testament. Um, And so we we should... always pause if something's new, given that the church has been around for 2,000 years. We should just pause. It doesn't mean it's wrong. Just pause. Um, but but I do actually think that view is wrong. But, <laughs> um, but the reality is a lot of folks will look at this and say, this is reference to this idea of a rapture, in which the church is going to be taken out of the world, and then really terrible things happen. Like, you know, like if you've, read any left behind books or watched any left behind movies, which might themselves be terrible uh, and depicting terrible things. But right, like this idea of the church is going to get sucked out of the world and then all sorts of craziness is going to happen and all of this stuff. Right. And, and it keys in on all of these metaphorical pictures throughout uh, Revelation and talks about them as literal and, and different things. Here's what's really important and why I think this is really important. Why would Jesus tell the church in Philadelphia, hold on and persevere if they're not going to be around for the worst part of it? Why, 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 why does it make sense if Jesus saying, I will protect you from the great time of testing, means I'm taking you out, and you're not going to experience the great time of testing? Why didn't he just say, hey, don't worry. I got a cushy place for you to hang out, while the world suffers greatly, right? Why not just say, hey, it's okay. All you got to do is last a little bit longer because then you're getting taken out. That's not what he says. He says, I will protect you in the time of testing. And how would we square this really terrible time of tribulation and the church not being present with other teachings that Jesus has? For his disciples, he says this in John 15, if the world hates you, remember it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if it belonged to you, but you are no if you belong to it, but you are no longer a part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do, do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me naturally they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. They do all this to you because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. Again, in 16, just a little bit further, he says, I have told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith, right? Which is exactly what he's telling Philadelphia. I'm telling you these things so that you will hang on further. For you will be expelled from the synagogues, and the time is coming when those who kill you will think they are doing a holy service for God. This is because they have never known the Father or me. Now, we could say within that, like, okay, that's this early period, but the worst of the testing, the tribulation, the thing that's coming later, that is a thing that's going to happen in another spot. That's a different thing, right? We could say that, except Jesus in John 17 is praying, and after this prayer, immediately after this prayer, He says, I'm praying not just for my disciples, but for any who believe in my name through their word. That includes you. So in John 17, Jesus is praying for you. And he says, I'm not asking, speaking to the Father, you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so that they can be made holy by your truth. Just as God sent Jesus into the world, so Jesus sends the church into the world. Into the world. To be protected from the evil one, but not to be protected from the trials of the world. Not to be protected from experiencing the tribulation of the world. If we think that the church is going to miss out on tribulation, it really does affect how we live. It can affect how we witness to our neighbor and love our neighbor. It can affect how we care for the planet that God has entrusted to us. It can affect how we care about our jobs and lives and families and all of these things because if at the end of the day we think, well, when it gets really bad, we're taken away, sweet, we can chill. But that's not what Jesus is encouraging the church to do. He says, you have only a little strength left but hold on because I will protect you. Not protect you by not allowing you to experience anything awful, but you persevering while you experience things. You persevering in faith. You being a faithful witness to the end. You being victorious. As Revelation 12 already said, because they love not their lives even unto death. You will be victorious by faithfully witnessing to Jesus and and loving God and neighbor, and even if you experience persecution and death, being faithful to Jesus. I think this is really important because how we understand what the future of the church is and what what we're going to experience will affect what we do with our daily lives. And whether we're more concerned with the reality of uh, uh, what's the next thing that's going to come and uh, figuring out the chart of uh, when Jesus is returning and who's who's the Antichrist and who's this and when this tribulation is going to happen so that we can figure out when we get out of here or whether we're going to be faithful to Jesus and love as many neighbors as we can while we wait for him, clinging to him, hoping in him, loving our neighbor, and trusting Him. This, I think, is the, the reality of what we need. We need to hold on to Jesus. And we do so because He sees us. You remember uh, one of the things that we uh, saw in, uh, I believe it was the church in Thyatira? Right? He said, uh, uh, let me see here, where does he say this? Ah, yes. Then, uh, then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person. He has eyes like flames of fire and he sees the thoughts and intentions of every person. He sees you. Here, right, and that was meant to say, wake up, wake up, church. Jesus sees you. Here, he says, I see you. I know all the things you do. I love you. I see you. Jesus sees you. He knows you. He is with you and for you. John 16, 33. In the midst of that whole thing, he says, I have told you this that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. You see, our victory, our overcoming, is only in the victory of Jesus, it's only in the thing that Jesus has done. And he is sending us just like the Father sent him to be a sacrifice, to love unto death. Jesus is sending us in that same way. Not to kill and destroy, but to be killed in our love. Not to overcome by overwhelming strength and victory, but in our weakness, to cling to the victory and strength of Jesus, knowing that he is good and faithful, and we can love our neighbor in the midst of it. We are sent to love, to suffer, to witness to the good news, and to wait on our reward. Now, why would we do that? Why would we do all of those things? Well, Jesus says to the victorious, hold hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. To all who are victorious, uh, all who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God, and they will never have to leave it. And I will write on them the name of my God, and they will be citizens in the city of my God. This is why uh, later we're going to find all these spots where, where people have numbers written on them and all these other things, and, and people try and take those as literal things, right? Like, you know, this, this, there's this thing that's going to happen, a chip in your forehead or whatever, all these things, right? Well, well, Jesus is writing on our heads too, right Right here. It's, it's metaphorical, right? It's metaphorical, a picture of I own you. I love you. I claim you as my own. I put my very name on you. Remember last week when it was you're living off of the reputation, the name that you have? But you have my name. I'm putting my name on you. I own you. I love you. Hold fast. You will never have to leave the temple of my God. You'll be citizens in this new city, this new Jerusalem that's going to come down from heaven. You get the new heavens and new earth and the keys to that gate are open. And that will never be shut. One of the things we're going to see at the very end of Revelation, this is highlighting this picture that we see at the very end when the new Jerusalem comes down. The gate is always open. It's never shut. Because those who are not present in the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and new earth, are Outside of it, outer darkness, they're outside of it, they're taken away. The gate is never shut because you can go in and out freely in the city of God. The door is open to the church and will never be shut by anyone. This is why we can do it. Because the kingdom door is open by Jesus and no one can close it. This whole section reminds me of how Paul encourages the church in Romans 8. One of the best sections of the New Testament. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Now, you've got to put yourself in the place of Philadelphia. This is a clearly a small church. They have little strength left. They have faced some kind of persecution through uh, likely similar to what we saw in other places where... Uh, uh, the Jewish population there is probably working with the Roman authorities to persecute the church, right? Because of the way he identifies the synagogue of Satan, all of these things. The church is being left out probably economically. They're suffering uh, some sort of persecution. Some of them are going to end up being martyred. Some of them are going to be killed simply because they believe in Jesus. Put yourself in that place and then here, if God is for us, Who can be against us? I've opened a door. No one can shut it. Since He did not spare even His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, won't He also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for His own? No one. That includes you, yourselves, accusing yourselves. No one. If Jesus died for you, that's it. That's the end. You can't even accuse yourself. Which is what we often do, right? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we will have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. You see, it's, very, it's the very same thing that Jesus is assuring the church in Philadelphia. In the worst time, in the time of testing, I will protect you. Even if you endure these things, Christ's love will not be taken from you. You will be protected. He loves you. He is holding you fast. Nothing can separate you from His love. Nothing. Nothing overwhelming victory. The same thing that Jesus affirms for the church in Philadelphia. Those who are victorious. Overwhelming victory is ours. Why? Because Jesus died and rose again. Because Jesus died for us. Not because the political candidate we choose wins. Not because the job we wanted we get. Not because the relationship we needed we get. Not because of any amount of money in our bank account or any of these things. But because Jesus died and then rose out of a tomb and walked and lives now to plead before God for you, that's why we are overwhelmingly victorious. Because the world can take that, cannot take that away. Nothing can be taken away in that. Nothing of God's love for you can be taken away because Jesus secured it. If you are trusting in Jesus and him alone, this is the promise that is for you. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears today for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can have assurance that you will persevere to the end. But what about if the world takes this thing from me? What did he say? Not the fears of today nor the worries of tomorrow can separate us from Christ's love. The Lord has assured you, if you are looking to Jesus and him alone by faith, you will persevere to the end because he will make it so. Now, you have to actually persevere in faith. You have to actually cling to the Lord. You have to actually continue to faithfully witness and love God and love neighbor. Absolutely. But the power to do so is from Jesus. He's assured you that he's going to do it. We may finish well because we can hold on to what we have. Everything. We already have everything we need. We have King Jesus. And because of that, we can then be sent like King Jesus into the world to love our neighbor and indeed our enemy, even unto death. Because we love not our lives unto death, but we love the Lord Jesus. Because he has loved us and given himself for us. Let's pray together. Lord God, we come to you now asking that you would persevere us. We, Lord, look to you by faith. We are looking to you and you alone to save us. Yet, Lord, we are weak. We have little strength as the church in Philadelphia did. And yet, Lord, we trust you because you hold the keys to the house of David. You hold the keys to the kingdom. You have opened a door for us that will never be shut. So, Lord, would you help us to come into your presence, into your kingdom, to enjoy your presence, to see you, and be transformed by our vision of you, so that we would love you and love neighbor. Thank you, Lord, that nothing can separate us from your love, and that you are glorious, And for us. God, would you be glorified as we worship you now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I invite you guys to stand as we respond and sing together in worship.